Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by author Richard Powers. Powers won the Pulitzer Prize in 2019 for his novel, The Overstory, a stunning, multi-generational epic that centers on the mysterious lives of trees. If that sounds like something you may not read, you're not alone. Former President Obama recently said of the book, it's not something I would have immediately thought of, but a friend gave it to me, and I started reading it, and it changed how I thought about the earth, how I see things. The writing of Richard Powers has that singular quality to change how you see the world around you and in turn, your place in it. His latest book called Bewilderment has a similar effect. It's set around a widowed father, Theo Byrne, and his nine-year-old son, Robin. Theo is an astrobiologist. Robin is a precocious preteen on the spectrum. The child is also deeply empathetic, curious, and concerned about our looming environmental crisis. At the heart of the book is a love story between father and son, but also a love letter to nature. As such, the book poses a clear but difficult-to-answer question. How can we tell our children the truth about this beautiful and periled planet? It's a question I've often wondered about and was grateful to pose to Powers in this conversation. 
We also unpack the similarities between the character of Robin and activist Greta Thunberg and the superpower of their neurodivergence, their autism. When it comes to the topics of climate change, the cost of capitalism, the restorative power of the outdoors, there are few as profound and insightful as Richard Powers. If you have not read Bewilderment, or if you're not familiar with Richard's work at all, I have a feeling you'll want to be by the end of this conversation. On a personal note, every year on this show, we put out somewhere between 50 to 60 episodes. Many of those episodes are special to me. In fact, all of them are special to me in one way or another. But sometimes people like Richard Powers come on and say things that you felt but couldn't articulate. Ideas you've pondered about the environment, spirituality, our purpose on this planet, but didn't have the language for. Powers, in his soft-spoken way, offers that clarity. A bridge to that which we know within ourselves but can't always communicate to others. In that way, he's kind of this soulful interpreter. And I'm grateful to present him to you today. This is Richard Powers. Richard Powers, thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. In 2002, in the Paris Review, you said, each of my books is a reaction against the previous one. And so I thought, why don't we begin here with that reaction from the overstory into bewilderment? I spent a long time writing overstory, almost six years. And it turned out to be a very long book with a large cast. And it unfolded over centuries. And frankly, it took a lot out of me. I started it in my late 50s and ended it in my early 60s. And when I finished, I wasn't sure I was going to be writing again. I thought, this is in some ways really a kind of last word of, of a journey that I've been making over a long time. And when I started again, I knew that I was in a different place. I knew I wasn't going to try to repeat that particular approach. I, I, I didn't have it in me to do another large-scale, long, multi-character story. And the connection that I had with bewilderment was already kind of formed by just where I was psychically. And to regenerate myself in a way, I decided to write something much more intimate, something that I knew would be a good deal shorter, that would be cast in a single narrative voice, it was like writing a piano sonata after writing a symphony. In that sense, bewilderment is a reaction formally to the overstory. It's an attempt to really set out into a kind of new narrative contract, a narrative endeavor that would allow me to rebuild myself and to take a fresh approach to who I was and what I was trying to do, but also thematically it obviously grows out of the concerns of the overstory. The overstory works its way toward this understanding that we're going to need a, a new way of being in the world, a new kind of consciousness if we intend to, to stay around here for much longer. 
And bewilderment took that seriously. And in the book, I try to dramatize the story of someone who does stumble into that new form of consciousness. And, and, and so, in a sense, it is a response to or a reaction against the questions that cast down in, in the overstory. Those questions being, how do we lose our sense of living here on Earth? How did we become so alienated and estranged from everything else alive? How did we get convinced that we're the only interesting game in town and the only species worthy of extending a sense of sacred to? Those, at least, were the questions you posed in the New York Times last month. Yeah, and, and so this story of uh, 39-year-old Theo Byrne stumbling to bring up his nine-year-old intense and, and troubled son, Robin, by himself after the death of his wife, becomes a story of how this father and son together might find their way back to planet Earth and return to the neighborhood and close up that distance between the humans and, and the more than humans. It becomes a, a kind of triple love story in a way. It's a, it's, it's a love of a father for his son who is in trouble, for whom he would do anything to keep him safe. It's the love story for a son of a son for his lost mother who dies uh, two years before the story begins. But it's also the love that these two father and son have increasingly for the world around them. And it's that reversal of alienation, I think, that lies at the heart of, of the new novel. On the love shared between this father and his son, you have this line I just kept rereading. You wrote, but he'd survived his mother's death. I figure he'd survive my best intentions. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure anyone ever knows how to bring up a child in this world. This story is so much about Theo's uncertainties, the consequences of decisions that he makes, that he's ambivalent about. But there is that leap of faith at the bottom of his efforts that just throws him back, knowing that all he can do is be present, to listen, to try to see what the world looks like from his boy's perspective. Well, what it looks like from his perspective is something that you're unpacking page by page. And you write a whole lot in this book about the sort of superpower of this child's autism, how the atypical person is seeing the world around them with more clarity and urgency than the rest of us. Is that a fair description? It is quite clear that Robin can't be considered normative. But what particular diagnostic label is going to be most helpful in understanding and treating him is an open question. And so I don't think Theo has reached a degree of comfort with a label of autism. And the label of autism itself is a kind of moving target. The nature of the autism spectrum is that it isn't a single presentation and it can manifest itself in profoundly different ways for different people. Robin is definitely different. He has great intensity. He's capable of great excitement and great love, but he also has extreme difficulty in regulating his emotions. The catch-all term neurodivergent, I think, is, is probably useful. It is, to some extent, 
his superpower as uh, Greta Thunberg has described her, her own neurodivergence. In some ways, he is very distinctive and his response to his own eco-trauma is very personal and unusual. But in some ways, he is very representative. I think in feeling terror and confusion in the face of the disintegration of the Earth's ecosystems, in his growing awareness that this living world that is so important to him is disappearing, he is quite representative of the kind of eco-trauma that I think is absolutely pandemic among children of all kinds. And so he has that sort of dual function as offering a perspective that is exceptionally intense and morally absolute, uncomprehending, both fearful and, and highly, highly engaged. But he is also just a child who feels deeply about the more than human world and simply can't comprehend any kind of adult logic that would allow that disappearance to happen. Robin needs an answer. Is this really happening? And why doesn't anybody do anything about it? And that's a tough question to walk away from when asked by a nine-year-old of such intensity. I think no scene in the book better reflects that generational frustration that you're talking about. You know, these unending pangs around the inactivity and inertia of previous generations. And that scene occurs in the middle of page 59, if you'd be open to reading it for us. That's great. We sobered up and read. The pages turned. We traveled easily everywhere. Then, without taking his eyes off his book, Robin asked, So what do you think happened to Mom? For one awful moment, I thought he meant the night of the accident. All kinds of lies presented themselves before I realized he was asking something much easier. I don't know, Robbie. She went back into the system. She became other creatures. All the good things in her came into us. Now we keep her alive with whatever we can remember. He tipped his head, a little reticent. My son, growing away from me. I think she's a salamander or something. I rolled to face him. Wait, what? Where'd you get that? I knew. The 30 species the Smokies had. Well, remember how you said Einstein proved nothing could be created or destroyed? That's right. But he was talking about matter and energy, how they keep changing from one form to another. That's what I'm saying. The words tore out of him so wildly I had to shush him. Mom was energy, right? My face got away from me. Yes, if mom was anything, she was energy. And now she's changed into another form. I tried to hug him, but he pushed away. It's probably just a figure of speech. She's probably not anything. The words froze me. Some awful switch had been thrown in him, and I couldn't tell why. Two percent, Dad? He snarled like a cornered badger. Only two percent of all animals are wild? Everything else is factory cows and factory chickens and us? Please don't shout at me, Robbie. Is that for real? Is it? I took our abandoned books and put them on the nightstand. If your mother said it in a speech for the state legislature, it's for real. His face bumped up like he'd been punched. His eyes curdled and his mouth opened in a silent scream. It took a moment for the soundless jag to turn into tears. I held out my arms, but he shook his head. Something in him hated me for letting that number be true. 
He backed into the corner of his bed, up against the wall. His head swung sideways in disbelief. Just as suddenly, he deflated. He lay back down, his back to me, one ear to the mattress. He lay there, listening to the hum of defeat. He felt around for my body in the space behind him. When he found it, he mumbled into the sheets, New Planet Dad, please. New Planet Dad, please. You could put that into uh, a bumper sticker. (laughs) And in fact, Theo, who is an astrobiologist and whose day job involves searching for biosignatures in the spectroscopy analysis of uh, the atmospheres of other planets, finds that one of the very few things that can calm Robin down is to take him to other planets. In lieu of bedtime stories, a father and son travel to imaginary places throughout the galaxy where the planet is just different enough that it means the possibility for life becomes something altogether different. And it's through these explorations of planets that father and son come to understand just how unlikely and difficult and lucky our planet is. And it's through the exploration of these new planets that first Robin and then Theo become recommitted to the possibility of alien life all around us. On the flip side of that bumper sticker, I'm calling a bumper sticker, (laughs) is that eco-trauma you talked about in the beginning of our talk. And I wondered if since it is consistent throughout the book, if you could articulate what exactly you think that trauma is. I think it would be hard to be nine years old and to know that by the time you were an adult, half the large animal species in the world would be gone. To look at an adult world that seems to be in an utter state of denial, traumatized, unable to move forward in any kind of meaningful way, unable to marshal the hope needed to look at the future as something other than catastrophic loss, is to be defeated. If you talk to people who are graduating from high school now or graduating from college now and ask them about their hopes for the future, as an increasing number of polls are saying, there's just an overwhelming majority of them who don't place much stock in it. It's partly a near-term problem. I mean, capitalism is failing. There's something breaking down. You know, for the first time in modern memory, it is no longer likely that you will do better off materially than your parents. The standard of living for the next generation is likely not to meet or exceed that of the previous generation. So there's that local anxiety about simply not being particularly hopeful for your own material prospects. But way beyond that, I think, among young people is just awareness of the utter paralysis that has befallen the politics and social will of the generation before them. Back in 2002, when your book, Time of Our Singing, came out, there was a question posed about racism. And and you have This quote I quite like that I think may apply to some of the problems we have when it comes to grappling with nature. You said, just as important is an understanding of the degree 
to which racism is driven by a fear of similarities. We love and hate, and we embrace, and we mistreat, and we exclude, not as a function of how little the other category overlaps with us, but as a function of how close the boundary is. If what looks so different from me is not that different, what happens to my sense of uniqueness? Destroy that thing that would destroy our own uniqueness. It's really interesting that you have made this connection and you've set off all kinds of associations in my own mind. We really believe that there is a radical discontinuity between us and the rest of the living world. And in many ways, there is. I mean, consciousness, the degree of consciousness that we have, language, high capacity for predictive modeling, all of these things that are distinctive to human beings do in some ways make us a separate creature. But we have intensified that by trying to suppress the degree of resemblance that we have with the rest of living creation. It is in many ways our own animal nature that makes us hugely anxious about other creatures and hugely determined to distinguish ourselves from them. It is our knowledge of the way in which the cycles of nature dictate the possibilities of individual lives and constrain within the bounds of mortality all any aspiration that you might feel. It is our knowledge of those things that has created this culture of dominance and mastery. Every technology that we invent increases the temptation to say we can become something nothing else ever was, and we can permanently remove ourselves from the constraints and the vicissitudes of the living world and set off on our own. I do think that our continuity with other living things makes us tremendously anxious. And I do think that could be one of the driving factors in how miserably <laughs> we have treated everything that's not us. Now, what do you mean by that exactly? Our fear of the continuity. If we felt that we had behavioral affordances and inclinations that weren't all that different from the hopes and fears of other animals, we wouldn't be able to have the food system that we have, for instance. We wouldn't be able to stand the thought of factory farms. I think it's a sense of our own mortality. It's our sense of our own relatedness to other creatures that has resulted in this enormous overreaction that has produced the extremities of human exceptionalism that, that make us insist that the rest of the living world actually doesn't have agency, doesn't have intelligence, or isn't capable of suffering in the way that we are. We want to erect a massive barrier in order to justify treating the rest of the living world as resources. The idea of needing that barrier between humans and animals to allow us to circumvent thinking about right from wrong, I think is best displayed in this passage here at the bottom of page 56. She recited the facts, number of participants, weight of winning entry, total animals killed in statewide contests every year, 
effects of lost animals on ravaged ecosystems. Her sober eloquence would conclude later that night in a two-hour crying jag in bed, with me powerless to comfort her. I kicked myself for imagining Robbie could handle this. But he'd wanted to see his mother, and truth be told, he was holding it together pretty well. Nine is the age of great turning. Maybe humanity was a nine-year-old, not yet grown up, not a little kid anymore, seemingly in control, but always on the verge of rage. Alyssa wrapped up. Her conclusion was masterful. She always nailed the landing. She said how this bill would restore tradition and dignity to hunting. She said how 98% by weight of animals left on Earth were either homo sapiens or their industrially harvested food. Only 2% were wild. Didn't the few wild things left need a break? Her closing words chilled me all over again. I remembered her working them out in weeks of laboring over this testimony. The creatures of this state do not belong to us. We hold them in our trust. The first people who lived here knew all animals are our relatives. Our ancestors and our descendants are watching our stewardship. Let's make them proud. The clip ended. I canceled the one that queued up next. To my relief, Robin didn't argue. He held three fingers against his mouth. The gesture made him look like a four-foot-tall Atticus Finch. Did that bill pass, Dad? Not yet, buddy. But something like it will one of these years. Even in that quiet passage of yours, I sense a lingering hope within you. Absolutely. The question of hope needs to be unpacked a little bit. When people ask me, is this a hopeful book, do I have hope? The very first thing that I want to ask back is, hope for what? Do I hope that we can get through the crisis that we've set in motion without profound change to how we live and what our expectations for life are? Do I think that we can keep the present system of capitalist, commodity-mediated, individualist, exceptionalist culture intact? No. And I don't think that's something we necessarily want to hope for. When people are demoralized by the climate crisis, it often comes because they have intuited correctly that we can't hope to hang on to the cultural formations that we've committed ourselves to. And yet hope is just the willingness to engage the future as if it still offered meaning. And that, I think, I absolutely have. I believe that once we get over the trauma of having to surrender a culture in which meaning is entirely created for and by individual selves and feeling as if we are amassing stockpiles of value through the places that we go, the things we accumulate, all of that, I think once we give up the trauma of surrendering that culture of private meaning and begin to locate meaning out there in a kind of reciprocal and interdependent and communal activity of returning to earth, of rehabilitating ourselves in this place, the future opens up magnificently and it's, it's full of possibility. It may be that the climate catastrophe actually shocks us into 
a new relationship with the world, not as a set of resources, but as a community of living things that gives us more daily sense of richness and possibility, potential, than the old cultures of accumulation ever gave us. I hope for that. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? 
Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. And yet I couldn't help but shake this feeling at the end of what you just said around this larger crisis, perhaps waking us up, undoing some past habits. I couldn't help but think of the rhetoric around the pandemic, that this event may actually bring us closer together, that it may have a unifying power. And now that we are 18 months into this pandemic, I think we can say quite comfortably or uncomfortably that what we hoped would be progress, something called enlightenment, doesn't particularly feel like enlightenment at all. That's for certain. The pandemic did not bring us together, rather the reverse. In very real ways, the pandemic did two things. One, it turned people outside. The pandemic has produced a tremendous hunger to remember what the non-human world looks like. And that's a very hopeful thing. And I also think the other positive development is that it stripped away almost like this pretense that we couldn't make mass collective action that wasn't economically justified. The economy was certainly hurt by the pandemic. But when you think of what we did to protect the at-risk populations during this time period, it completely invalidates any argument from economic pragmatism, oh, we can't do that because the economic growth would suffer and that would be the end of everything. Well, it wasn't the end of everything. And in that sense, we are closer to understanding the sleight of hand that goes on in justifying everything that we pursue in terms of immediate economic gain. That's a big blow to that sort of cultural mythos. It's a blow that I think brings us closer to understanding the funny bookkeeping that's at the heart of a lot of economics to begin with. The ways in which what we call wealth isn't wealth and that we've actually been drawing on principle in a kind of sleight of hand way. And one thing that the pandemic certainly did was make us realize that we can't be dictated by artificial economic gains that aren't sustainable and that we have interests that have to drive our choices before this sense that the GDP comes before all things. There's a famous quote by Frederick Jameson. You probably know this. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. (laughs) Well, for a brief moment in the pandemic, While we were imagining the end of the world for sure, we also began to glimpse that it's possible to imagine the end of capitalism or the transformation of capitalism into something else. And what do you imagine that something else could be? I think it would be an entirely different set of bookkeeping. It would acknowledge that any system where economics and ecology are at odds with each other isn't doing its bookkeeping right. I believe that once we begin to shift this sense of personal purpose outwards beyond the self into this collective enterprise of engaging the future, of rehabilitating, of returning to earth, the economy and ecology begin to align much more closely. I think about Robin's passage through this book, his growing serenity, his growing joy at 
being constantly surprised and delighted by the more than human world around him as an indication of a kind of wealth that many cultures never stopped tapping into, but the culture that took over the world has forgotten. A world in which living where you live, within the affordances of the seasons as they unfold, knowing who you share this place with, knowing the agency of those creatures, knowing what the place that you live in wants to do, what kinds of life it has shaped to adapt to the possibilities of that place. Having that kind of outward orientation is immensely enriching. It is also a source of meaning that is less threatened by death than the source of meaning that we look for in our culture. When meaning is private, when it depends upon amassing things, it is finished, it is put to an end with death. When instead you base your sense of economy on these large interdependent systems of biological wealth, death is not a design flaw to be overcome or vanquished, rather a feature of life, something that allows new possibilities to constantly enter back in. And once someone experiences that feeling of connectivity that Robin achieves through the course of the book, where your sense of destiny is imbricated empathetically with the fates of other living things, the idea of disappearing isn't as terrifying because your interests, your desires, and your hopes are invested in this aggregate community, which of course survives beyond you and continues to recombine all the things that you were. I love this idea that your fate is inextricably linked to the person across from you on that bus right now. The person driving in the car next to you, maybe someone who's doing the dishes in your house, that your fate is linked to their own. And as we talk about personal purpose and meaning, because we're all searching for some kind of meaning, we've taken a very 30,000 foot view. And I want to go a little bit more granular here in understanding your purpose. And to do that, I thought we'd begin on the final two paragraphs of page 48. I woke one morning looking down on my body where I lay in bed. I saw myself the way my old mentor, Dr. McMillan, sized up a new species of archaea. I weighed where I'd come from, my cast of mind, the sum of my failings and capabilities, and I knew what I wanted to do before my small part of this giant experiment ended. I'd visit Enceladus and Europa and Proxima Centauri B, at least via spectroscopy. I'd learn how to read the histories and biographies of their atmospheres, and I'd comb through those distant oceans of air for the slightest signs of anything breathing. I present that passage to you and the listener because I want to go back to when you, Richard Powers, knew what you wanted to do before this giant experiment ended. To do that, we have to go back to 1980. You had finished college. You're 23 years old. You're working as a computer programmer. You live near a museum in that time. And on a Saturday, you went to an exhibit that you did not know and found something that changed you. 
I would be inclined to start this story a couple of decades earlier when I was a boy of Robin's age. There were years growing up where I imagined myself being just about every kind of scientist that I could think to be. You know, I wanted to be a geologist. I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to be an oceanographer. I wanted to be an entomologist. It was just this endless sense of fascination and, and curiosity. And I just thought, what a great life it would be to just feed that curiosity. You know, the, the problem is, as I grew older, I didn't want to give any of it up. I just felt a kind of panic at having to specialize and make decisions. You know, when I graduated from high school and went to college, the idea of declaring a major was like killing 40 other lives that I wanted to lead. It was just a period of great stress for me. In fact, I remember freshman year of college just having a kind of pit in my stomach the whole year. I actually went to the doctor and wanted a diagnosis for why I had constant stomach pain. And he said, you're experiencing great stress. Is there any reason for that? And the reason was simple. I was a generalist who was living in a specialist's world, and I didn't know how to move forward without giving up in most of the things that interested me. And when I discovered writing, first poetry, and then short fiction, I just thought, this is so wonderful because the choice to do this doesn't preclude the choice to fill it up with all these other curiosities. To write was not to give up on being any of these other things. In fact, it was the way forward to be all those other things, one after the other after the other. So when I was a young man in 1980, at this moment that you described, and I was making a living as a computer programmer, I no longer felt that sense of low-grade panic that I was a computer programmer and not something else, because I had writing. I had this idea that I could fix myself and, and define myself and shape myself through this other activity that wasn't professional yet, but that could allow me vicariously to pursue just about any other professional course of interest that caught my fancy. And when I did walk into that museum on that Saturday morning and turn around the corner and see this photograph that was looking back at me, these three men in the middle of an empty road in the weeks just before World War I, in their Sunday finest, just looking out over their shoulder. When I stepped into their gaze and kind of completed this circuit across the distance of 75 years, I just thought I could be for a while an historian. I could be for a while a participant in the lives of these other people who were shaping and seeing the world in very different ways. And that's been the beauty of all 13 of these books. Each one has been a kind of ticket to another way of understanding the world, another kind of discipline, another professional relationship through the eyes of people who pursued the careers that I myself would never pursue. I so love that. There's also something curious about the reality of being a writer, which is you have to do the very thing you just described. Imagine people that are not you in a time that you cannot travel back to or ahead to. But the other part of writing is that it pushes the writer into a deep kind of solitude away from other people. And I wondered if you'd be open to sharing a lecture 
given by Terry Waite that I think inspired you to embrace this way of life? Yeah, I had written a number of books already. I had lived for some years in the Netherlands. When I left the Netherlands, I went to England for about half a year, and I was living in Cambridge. And while I was in England, I happened to attend a lecture given by Terry Waite, who was the special emissary to the Middle East during the years of the Lebanese Civil War, when so many Westerners had been kidnapped. And he himself, on a journey to try to free some of the Western hostages, was himself taken hostage and held in solitary confinement for a long period of time. I remember going to the lecture, seeing him come out on stage, limping, walking with a cane, and everyone in the hall knew that was because of the treatment that he had received at the hands of his kidnappers. After the lecture was done, someone from the audience in the question and answer period went to the mic and said, can you tell us what you learned from all your years in solitary confinement? And I could hear a kind of gasp in the audience, and I myself recoiled a bit from the question. And I, and I thought, you know, that's a little blunt, uh, a little reductionist. And I wondered what Waite would say. You know, I, I thought he might say, you know, you know, all of the truisms that you would reach for, you know, never take anything for, for granted, uh, you know, savor every connection with every person that you've ever had, be present and live each day uh, as fully as possible. And he said almost the opposite. He said, I learned that we've lost our capacity for productive solitude. And for me, as someone committed to an activity that does rely to some extent on removing yourself, it was moving to think that here was someone who had solitude forced on him and who ultimately learned that there could be a great potential for creation, and self-realization in that enforcement. You said, what Waite told the audience was like a justification for this unjustifiable process that I've given my life to. It's funny though, Sam. I mean, over the course of 40 years and 13 books, I have gotten very comfortable with trying to locate the creative potential of solitude. But it has produced another kind of crisis, which is as productive solitude becomes more familiar and easier to achieve, what about all of the surprises and inspirations and discoveries that you can only make by being in the thick of the discomfort and messiness of human affairs? If you did nothing, if you did the Proust thing forever, the well would run dry. And you would be so cut off from the world of present concerns and consensual explorations and all of the cultural urgencies that nothing that you said would, you know, have currency among these people who don't have the luxury of being locked in the back room. And so the problem of writing has reversed for me in some ways. I've had to find new ways to force myself out of solitude and to accept the uncontrollable and the irritating and the distressing and the stressful aspects of the marketplace of human interaction 
it's this weird vacillation between throwing yourself into the thick of things and removing yourself to a kind of safe vantage that constitutes the writing act. It's a wild kind of a high wire where you lean to the left too far and you have to you know, jerk back to the right. I remember, I think it was Turgenev who said that he could only write when he had his feet in hot water, wrapped up in blankets in a very, very comfortable chair, but by an open window where he could look out and see the street and all the crazy things that people were doing to each other out in the street. That weird sense of being an insider-outsider, of having that protecting womb, but also having the inescapable stresses and challenges of the uncontrolled life of bumping against up against human beings who had a very, very different sense of what constituted interest and values and worth. You know, I have to say, I sort of marvel at the contradictions at play, both on page and within yourself. Because for the first 20 years of your career, there was this recurring criticism that your characters were unfeeling, merely vessels for a larger ideological point. And then I read this book, this new book, and I have to say, anyone who reads this book would never say, Richard Powers, he's not feeling very much. Richard Powers, he doesn't like people very much because this book is almost pure feeling. And then conversely, you see I'm ping-ponging back and forth, but I'm trying to settle this. A profile of you is written in the New York Times just last month. And it's characterization of you. Maybe you don't agree, but I read it as someone who doesn't particularly like people. And I don't know whether that characterization is a faulty one by the New York Times. Certainly it wouldn't be their first mistake. <laughs> yeah. Or if we're trying to pinpoint something more nuanced. It absolutely was a false characterization. And I'm not sure whether my tongue-in-cheek humor was lost on the reporter or whether her tongue-in-cheek characterization is lost on readers. But any reader who came away from the piece thinking that I am a misanthrope, I think was badly served. Let me go back to what you were saying about characterization of the early books as being cold or very thinky and not very feeling. I have never myself made a profound distinction between thinking and feeling. I think they are deeply connected. And I think that the thoughts that we have about ourselves, about other people and about the world are not the opposite of passion. They're driven by passion. They produce passion. The novel of ideas and the novel of character never seemed like two different things to me. I always thought that you can really get into the heart and soul of a person by understanding the way that they have tried to extend their comprehension on the world. People are passionate about their pursuits. People are passionate about what they've come to learn and know and understand within their professional disciplines and in their mastery of the challenges of the world through their intellect. Emotion, affective states, is itself a form of intelligence, a form of fast, intuitive intelligence. And these two systems, you know, what Kahneman would call uh, system one and system two, thinking fast and thinking slow, thinking hot emotionally, thinking cool analytically, are both in the human brain. 
And if you want to tell the story of what it feels like to be a human here on this earth, you have to let both of those systems have their say. You have to get them firing on all cylinders and feeding off one another in big feedback loops. In my novels, I went against a prevailing aesthetic in literary fiction that was much more comfortable dramatizing and representing people more exclusively through affective states and often treated analytical or cognitive processes inside humans as rationalizations or defenses or somehow sidestepping the real truth of this fast, hot way of knowing the world. And what I wanted to do was break up that myth a little bit and say, no, actually, people are much more complicated than that. I love human beings. You know, Proust said that the hermit is the person for whom the judgment of humans is so important and so intense that he has to remove himself from human affairs in order to regain self-possession. That is probably a better characterization of my temperament than the one given in the New York Times piece. The comments that were quoted in that piece are the kind of tongue-in-cheek, self-deflating, ironic humor that I put into the books and will often surprise people. To think deeply (laughs) is not to depart from the realm of the absurd and the humorous and burlesque. They too are of a piece. They are also integral components in this big noisy parliament of the human brain. We are all many. That's this idea of a solid, continuous, singular character at the heart of a person is just misleading, you know? It's a literary simplification. We are all many and we are all experimental works in progress. We are all discontinuous with who we were in the past, and we are already a kind of distant memory to the people that we're going to be in the future. We have to accept the multiplicity that lies at the heart of each one of us. I want to sit with that multiplicity before we go, because you talk about the noisy parliament of our brains, but also yours. And in that, I think you wanted to produce a kind of writing you felt did not exist. Is that right? I think the act of reading and writing is an act of constant evolution. There is something in commodity culture, you know, when we read a book and we feel we have to rush online and say, that's a five-star book or that's a three-star book or that's a one-star book. There's something that's desperately trying in that commodity relationship to reading that's trying to preserve the continuity of a self that isn't actually continuous and that isn't actually stable in that way. For me, the perfect reading experience is one where I come out the other end with a different idea of what I might like or not like than I had coming in. You know, Borges, he says, you know, in the great short story, Pierre Menard, the man who wrote Don Quixote, he says, Liking and not liking are sentimental acts, and they have nothing to do with understanding literature. Understanding literature means immersing yourself in a process that completely surprises you with regard to what you thought you liked. You come out the other end a slightly different person. That's certainly the case when you write. I sit down, I start a book, I think I know what I'm doing. Four or five years later, everything has gone and I'm in a completely different place and I understand myself and my goals in a different way. And that's the point. The point is not to solidify some sense of hierarchical preference 
that I had when I started the process. The process is to blow that open and leave myself vulnerable again and open to the surprises of becoming something else. I bring all this up because in that Paris Review interview we started with, one of the final questions is the interviewer asking you, do you think you write because you've never found the book that quite matches what you feel and think about the world? And you said, you go into that bookstore hungering for a world and a coloration and a register in sounds and senses, and you run your finger along the shelf and wonder, is this it? Is this it? And you find something that's close or something that surprises you in its divergence from what you needed. But finally, you can't find the book that you want to read. And that's when you start writing. The wonderful thing about books is that they're slow and they're silent. And they are exercises in concentration. You are both with other people, the people inside the story. You're vicariously living these lives that are so different from your own. You are with another person in a strange, intense, one-to-one communion with somebody who you don't know from Adam. They might be dead. They might have lived in another country 200 years ago. And yet you're also by yourself in that room with the pages. What the book can do in training you in this odd sense of stillness, but attentiveness of privacy, but communion, what learning how to read can do is to teach us each to cultivate those abilities that allow us to be present to the world outside us. We learn in books how to read another person, but we also learn in books how to read the things that are beyond people and the qualities that we need to be a good reader. Stillness, focus, concentration, attention, and presence are the qualities that we as species are going to have to learn if we want to return to planet Earth and stick around. That scene in Plowing the Dark, a man enters a used bookstore looking for a book that moved him as a child and that he's been looking for since the age of nine. And at age 64 now, I wonder, when you walk into that bookstore, are you still that child? Oh, yeah, he's always in there. But he's, he's wrapped in so much additional hunger that he's become a different thing. I think a life unfolds in a way that's analogous to the way that we read a book. We experience it serially, and we think somehow that the past is fixed and the future is open. But there's a weird logic to living and to reading a book that stands that on its head. On page nine of life or of the book, we have a sense of what page nine means. But by the time we get to page 64, page nine has changed. The past is constantly being changed by every page that we turn. And Oddly, the future, the last page that we make our way toward, is out there somewhere. In this odd logic of the book, as Peter Brooks puts it, we read with anticipation of retrospection. We know it on each page, that every page that we've been to is going to be changed by each page that's still ahead. Well, whatever it is that is ahead, for you, for your writing and all of us taking it in. I so look forward to it. Richard Powers, stay safe. Thanks so much, Sam. 
that's our show. Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Riley, Gina Savoy, and the team at W.W. Norton, and of course, Richard Powers. His new book, Bewilderment, is available wherever you do your reading. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a beautiful, breathtaking piece of work. To learn more about Richard, visit TalkEasyPod.com. There, you'll find a back catalog of over 200 episodes, including our talks with fellow writers like Michael Lewis, Elizabeth Gilbert, Noam Chomsky, Malcolm Gladwell, Jhumpa Lahiri, Ocean Vuong, Dr. Cornell West, Anne Lamott, Rucker Bregman, and George Saunders. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support the show by purchasing one of our mugs or our vinyl record with the inimitable Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com shop. Of course... This show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Caitlin Dryden. Illustrations are by Krisha Shanoi. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, and Callie Syringas, and the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Nick Offerman. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.